Hi, everyone. This is your host, Greg Myers, and this episode is part of our special series focused on diversity and inclusion. In this series, I will be talking with leaders in the payments industry and maybe some experts from outside of the industry about diversity and inclusion. It has been proven that a diverse workforce and diverse management team leads to increased creativity, better decision-making, reduced employee turnover, and increased profit, as well as many other benefits that we will be talking about. This special series is brought to you by the WNET and PaySafe. Give yourself a present. Receive holiday coping strategies from the WNET. Unwrap a holiday COVID survival guide from the Atlanta chapter on Wednesday, December 2nd. Celebrate mindfulness and reduce your stress with the North Texas chapter on Thursday, December 3rd. Everyone is welcome to these free online linkups. Register at WNETonline.org on their events page. PaySafe is a leading global specialized payment provider. They've been driving innovation in and around payments for over 20 years all over the globe for both businesses and consumers. PaySafe believes diversity and inclusion is not just a checkbox, but rather a journey in which they are fully committed to being on around the world. Learn more at PaySafe.com. I'm honored to be joined on this, the third episode of our diversity and inclusion series by Liz Pike. Liz Pike is the president of Green Rhino Recruitment with offices in Phoenix, Atlanta, Seattle, and Denver. She focuses her recruitment practice in the area of payment processing and fintech with a strong understanding of the payments ecosystem, players, and technology. Liz grew up in Southern Idaho and graduated from Arizona State University. She managed sales recruiting at Heartland and also worked for two years at TSIS in corporate recruiting. In the middle of her recruiting career, she worked at an IPSP and an ISO to get hands-on experience and to understand payments. Liz is a board member of the WNET and currently lives in Phoenix with her husband. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Liz. Welcome to this special series of the Leaders in Payments podcast about diversity and inclusion. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Great. So tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you're from and currently live, a few things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Southern Idaho. My father was a Mennonite minister, and I am one of six siblings. I moved out to Arizona once I graduated high school and didn't know anyone, didn't even have air conditioning in my car, and drove on down and got a hostess job. And I've been in Arizona ever since. I live here now with my husband up in North Phoenix. We've got two dogs and two cats. We like to go hiking and we are happy that it is finally November so that we can go outside. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Beat the humidity, I guess. Well, you know, it's the heat, not the humidity. Oh, that's true. (laughs) As they say, right. It's the heat, not the humidity. Right, right. (laughs) Well, let's talk about Green Rhino Recruitment. Tell us what the company does and what your role is. Absolutely. So Green Rhino Recruitment is a woman-owned niche recruitment firm focused on payments and fintech. We have four offices. I'm here at the headquarters in Phoenix, but we've got an office in Atlanta, in Denver, and in Seattle. We are a small firm. We get most of our business through referrals. And I think the word different from other recruitment firms in the payments industry is a couple things. One, we scale up and down levels of positions and sizes of companies. 
So that means, you know, we can be placing C-level people, just finished two COO placements, or we can also be working with smaller companies that need a manager or a sales executive. We also have national contracts and work with top acquirers, but I'll work with startups or ISOs or payfacts that haven't really worked with recruiters before to find a way that we can work with them. Another thing we do a little differently is we provide resources to candidates looking other recruiters, connections in the space, sample resumes, links to career coaches, even if we don't have a job open for them at that time. Now, of course, not all of this leads to revenue, but I try to see the search and placement process as holistic and focused on the people, not just as transactional. And I think that's part of why we've been so successful. Okay, great. I think people that know you and have been around you know that you're a big proponent of diversity and inclusion. So what inspired you or who inspired you to be such a big proponent of that? That's a fantastic question. I know I'm pretty pragmatic and I've always seen it as a fact that different types of people are treated differently. When I first moved out to Arizona at 18, I was working at a restaurant for $6 an hour. I moved to working at a bank and then I moved to working at a Fortune 1000 company that had a big call centers and then they would promote into managers. I saw how I was treated differently as I moved up in the world in terms of making more money. But also when I was at that Fortune 1000 company, I was in a division of 500 and I saw how it was pretty equal in terms of men and women being top performers, like in the top 3%. Maybe there were slightly more performing women. But out of that division of 500, we had 50 managers and only five were women. It was interesting because, you know, they were all recruited from the same pool. But while I was there, I consistently saw more men get promoted, even those that came in on a management track, fast track, and hadn't actually proven their performance. When I mentioned that and kind of pointed out that disparity to my friends in my management peer group, they were surprised. And to me, it was just simple math. It was pretty clear from the statistics. But you could see the results of that in terms of managers coming in who weren't experienced and getting promoted and then resentfulness among employees. I was also in a company that was primarily male. And I saw that when I was first starting out, I kind of had to prove to people that I knew what I was talking about in terms of payments or knew certain people. When I trained some recruiters who were men, I didn't see that they got tested as easily in calls with candidates. So I think I just kind of had that in the back of my head. And I joined a group focused on inclusion of women in payments. That made such a difference in my job performance and business perspective, where I could speak to a variety of women at all levels that I realized not only is this just kind of a systemic issue that we can see borne out in performance and promoting to management, we can change this and that can really help individuals and companies perform better. So I would say it's something I've noticed for a while, but I probably got really into it 
in my mid-20s when I started getting involved more in Electronic Transaction Association, WNET, Merchant Acquiring Committee, things like that. Okay. Well, let's talk a little more about diversity and inclusion, and let's look at it from the 50,000-foot level. What does it mean to you? How do you define diversity and inclusion? It's starting to sound kind of like a buzzword, D&I, and everyone wants to have D&I. To break it down, diversity in any situation is ensuring that all types of people are represented within a group. Inclusion is focused on how included the people are in the culture in all areas. So anything from social interactions and friendships to listening to different perspectives and meetings, taking ideas seriously. So it's not enough just to have different types of people. You have to have an environment where people listen to and respect each other. Inclusion means the people that are minorities feel they can influence the company or movement in the same way the majority can. So I'm sure some people listening to this have been in an experience where they're in a meeting and they're the only one of whatever they are, a white person, a woman, a black person, an older person, someone heavier. Sometimes they will feel like if they speak up, they're not heard. True inclusion is say not just bringing different people to the table, but saying, is this a supportive environment? Inclusion really takes behaviors of leaders and employees or citizens along with the implemented policies and says, here's unconscious bias that we have. Here's things we can do to change that. Maybe that could be through training, creating a more supportive environment. Whereas when we think of diversity, we think of just bringing people to the table. That's a great first step. But inclusion is really the attitude or the openness of the in-group to hear from the out-group. What's interesting about this is I was happy to do this podcast, but I also felt like I'm a white woman. What do I, what do I have to share with people that's valuable? And I asked some of my friends who are people of color. I was thinking maybe there's some, some things they want to say that they feel they're not being listened to in business or some sort of trick that someone could help for a more inclusive environment. And my friend, who's a black woman, said, even listening and taking concerns seriously is something to be applauded. She explained to me how in the past at large companies and mid-sized companies, she brought up concerns to management about division or even, hey, we'd like to join. She gave me an example. I wanted to join a payments networking group, but I was belittled saying, oh, you just want to go and shop. She said, how is that different than playing golf? You know, we're all bonding with people in business. So that's inclusion. To respect another person's point of view enough to consider it and hold that in as something that can be true. And to listen to people when they point out the inconsistencies. So I would say for true diversity is bringing people who are different to the table in the group. Inclusion, the first step is listening to someone's perspective without dismissing it. And if someone's thinking, well, if that's inclusion, people should listen to my perspective without dismissing it. That's the opposite way to go about an inclusive mindset. What we should be asking is, 
who can I listen to? And I think that's the real key for inclusion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great definitions. And I think spot on with what we're trying to do with this podcast is really elevate the topic such an important topic in not just this industry, but every industry. And I noticed, I believe it was on your LinkedIn profile that you had completed a course at Cornell on diversity and inclusion. So what did you learn from that course? I did complete a Cornell course. I learned a lot. I was out to an outside socially distanced lunch with a friend of mine from the payments and tech industry a couple weeks ago. And we were talking and he leaned over and said, well, Liz, do you really think that there is systemic racism and everyone has unconscious bias? And so I think part of the way we look at this is we're thinking unconscious bias is a bad thing. What we need to understand is evolutionarily, we all have certain bias. Our brains couldn't take in enough information and make decisions otherwise. But when we say unconscious bias, that's one thing to say. It's harder to to kind of explain, we all take in information and make assumptions. Unconscious bias is basically the idea that the brain's regions are influenced and stereotyped in early childhood. That's helpful evolutionarily, but it doesn't help us navigate the modern world. One thing that the Cornell course had me do was take the Project Implicit Test. It's called IAT. You can take that at Harvard EDU, and you can test your implicit bias in a variety of different areas. It was really interesting to me. Because even going into it saying, okay, I'm not going to have bias, I'm not going to have bias. When you're on the computer and selecting certain words, I could feel my brain slow down and not want to make certain connections. Now, that doesn't mean we're all just going around thinking horrible, prejudicial thoughts about others. It just means we all have underlying assumptions in different ways. I was surprised to see that there isn't enough research for sure to say that implicit biases can be reduced or eliminated. That is very interesting. We've done training with people, but we just don't have enough data. And it seems like unconscious bias is just a byproduct of our brain. So I have found it's best to focus on strategies that deny any biases the chance to operate. Sometimes that might be like a structured decision process in an interview. But what we can't do is we can't think, I have no unconscious bias. (laughs) Because if we don't recognize it, we actually keep on perpetuating it. Some people are relieved when we discuss things that people see as unconscious bias. Like if someone experienced something in an interview process or in a meeting and they bring it up, they see it as, hey, I see something that's not right. The only way to fix this and move forward is by discussing it and working around it like any other obstacle. Other people get defensive and think, hey, if I don't see this immediately or I don't understand it, then it doesn't exist. Or in some cases, I've heard some people after 
<laughs> after drinks at trade shows is, okay, well, if everything's equal, then there's not going to be as many leadership opportunities for men. That's really not the way to go around it. And science shows that people who deny things like the wage gap are more likely to unconsciously perpetuate it. From a business standpoint, this doesn't make sense long term. You want to create a diverse and inclusive team because not every single person can be strong in every area. And there's a lot of research that shows that creating a diverse team leads to stronger financial performance in companies. So I know that's a lot of different things I'm saying, but basically what I learned was we can make changes with unconscious bias and increase diversity and inclusion, but we have to have laser focus and commitment, not just to bringing in potential employees, but to making sure we're being transparent with our employees or our team on what our goals are. And then we're creating an environment where people feel safe to speak up. No retribution. They know they'll be accepted openly if they see something that they'd like fixed. A lot of it just comes down to understanding we have unconscious bias, taking steps to prevent it while remaining open, and understanding it's a long-term process. This isn't like, okay, we hit a goal, we're at this diverse level, or now we no longer have any unconscious bias. It's a constant process of making sure we're communicating with people in a very authentic way and respecting their views as well. I think a lot of people feel dismissed. And then if you feel dismissed once or twice, you're so much more likely to be quiet the next time you see something that makes you uncomfortable. Right. I really, given your company and your role, I really want to dive a little bit deeper into the actual hiring process. What steps do you see companies taking to remove that bias from the hiring process? I mean, I think there's some obvious answers, but being in that space, I think you can probably give a unique perspective as to what you see companies doing to change the hiring process to make sure that those things are being brought to light across the company. And the other dynamic that I think might be interesting is how do you see those steps being taken by companies, the difference in large companies and small companies? Because I'm sure smaller companies don't have the resources larger companies have. So can you discuss sort of those topics a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I know a lot of larger companies have diversity and inclusion initiatives, and they have programs that they set up. But many small to mid-sized companies, especially during COVID, don't have a ton of money to throw at it. And the good thing is there's a lot of research out there and a lot of actions people can take. So throwing money at increasing diversity isn't necessarily the only answer. I will say most companies try to expand diversity by going through referrals through their company or going to an external recruiting firm and saying, we want diversity. The problem with referrals and just working within your own circles is that we tend to attract people who are like us. One of the key points I found fascinating in the Cornell class around recruiting is around the statistics with more than two candidates that are diverse in a final interview process. It's called the two in the pool effect. And this was in Harvard Business Review. They found that when the candidate pool 
had only one minority candidate, whether it was a person of color or a woman or something like that, he or she had virtually no chance of being hired. However, if there were at least two minority candidates in the final pool, two females, two people of color, the odds of hiring that minority candidate are 79 times greater. If there are at least two minority candidates and another candidate that is like a woman, a different kind of minority, if you got a total of three in the final pool, the odds of hiring a minority candidate are 194 times greater. So if as hiring managers or recruiters, we can focus on what diversity means for this company and then get multiple of those people in the final pool, they have a much larger chance of being hired on. So that's one thing we can focus on. Another thing that I work on with companies when they want to remove bias from the hiring process, but they don't know how, is I talk about what actual qualities they want in the person or experience if they're saying something like, we want this type of person. So for example, if I'm speaking with a company and they say, we want a young up-and-comer to join, I say, okay, let's dig down into what qualities you would like about that person. They might say, well, they're energetic. They're easy to learn. They're technically savvy. I know they'll want to grow with the company. And so then I explain, okay, I ask them, you know, what's your company like now? What are the employees like? Is there diversity? And then I say something like, you know, with COVID or with our current environment, there's a lot of people who are energetic, who are technically savvy, who are very eager to learn and to have just had some bad luck. And maybe they're not a recent college grad, but the upside is they have a lot of work experience and payments experience. They could ramp up quickly. Are you open to that? So I think when hiring managers or leaders start digging into why they want certain qualities, and instead of associating that with how that quality looks, actually saying, what do we like about this quality? That can help. Another thing that can help is putting together like a matrix to assess those skills and having people give them a numerical grade and also putting in notes. That can be a way to help kind of streamline the process. But I have also seen, I've seen a ton of times where people just don't want to do that and go off of their emotions. (laughs) Or you might have five people on a hiring team, maybe three of them will do the notes and two won't. And so what you really want to focus is on what soft skills and qualities you want, ensuring those candidates have them, and then ensuring that you have enough minority, whatever that minority is. I mean, honestly, in some companies, the minority might be an older person or the minority might be a guy. So you kind of have to do it based on what the different companies look like. And then make sure there are two or three of those strong candidates that can make it to the final process. That's your best bet for getting diversity in the door. For inclusion, there's a ton of resources that we can dive into later. But I think the two simplest things are the two in the pool effect and then taking what's my ideal candidate 
and what are those actual skills that I need and realizing those skills don't need to be connected to a person that looks a certain way. And sometimes all that takes is a conversation and then reinforcing how does this person compare with these five areas you need them in the job. And that's what we mean when we say unconscious bias is no one's doing any of this on purpose, but we haven't really come up with a way as a society, especially when recruiting, when your product is people and the client is people, you might have to dig in and find out what is best for that individual team or company. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So let's kind of flip the coin over and talk about maybe some of the challenges that companies face. So they could be around when they're creating a diversity and inclusion program or when they have it up and running. What do you see some of the challenges to be? Yeah, it's been interesting. I see a lot of companies, especially since the marches this spring and summer, investing in diversity and inclusion programs. I'm seeing an expansion in open roles and a lot of interest in training on inclusion. And a lot of companies have asked about it, but with COVID are in a save, not invest mode and don't know how to implement those strategies at a low cost. So I would say, right, most common fear leadership, not knowing how much to invest and if that investment will pay off and then not being sure which strategies work or are most effective. However, fortunately, both of those hurdles can be overcome because it's really clear in multiple areas of research that companies benefit long-term once diversity and inclusion is increased. But most of that will depend on the openness of the culture, starting with leadership and management to be inclusive. So the first thing you need is acknowledgement that this is something we want to work on, and then a commitment, and then having the leaders advocate openly and in how they communicate with people for inclusion. Leaders setting examples and really focusing as the company gets into, here's what we want to do using discomfort as an opportunity for learning. What happens with many companies, I saw many case studies where they started inclusion programs and several of the leaders either didn't want to be involved or actively kind of disparaged the program. And so they would get diverse people in, but then those diverse people would be leaving within one to five years. And so the first thing is getting leadership on board. The second thing is understanding if we're uncomfortable, that's an opportunity for learning and changing the focus to be solution oriented. So if someone comes in and says, hey, we're working on this inclusion program, here's what I'm upset about, here's what I'm not seeing, instead of processing that, like, well, I don't know. I think we've made a lot of progress. We're better than we used to be. If people want to change things, then they can step up. Changing that to, this is good feedback. I feel uncomfortable. What can we learn from this? What would you like us to know in this situation? That type of thing. So I really think if you can get it down to commitment and leaders wanting that be on board, an open mindset and being open to discomfort, I know that sounds very simple, (laughs) but that is your first big step. And that is like 50% 
of the diversity and inclusion work because once you have people in and having these conversations, you have leadership open. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've heard it um, phrased, we all need to get comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And I think that's sort of what you're saying in some ways. Well, let's talk about the payments industry as a whole. How do you think we're doing as an industry on this topic? Historically, we have done poorly compared to other industries. The recent McKinsey and Oliver Wyman reports show women in financial services are actually leaving faster than they are entering. And after two years, women are much less likely than men to say they want to move up within their organization. However, there is a bright side to that. I've seen in the past 18 months much more engagement and interest from people in payments on increasing diversity and in a sincere, inclusive way. Like I've had men call me say, I want to be involved in mentoring. We've had calls focused on inclusion and payments. I've seen a lot of passion from Electronic Transaction Association and other associations that want to bring on leaders to increase the diversity in their team. And even when I'm talking to clients, they're framing this as we need more diversity and not just to check off a box, but because we need to be more strategic and perform in a stronger way. So I think it's really encouraging to see that so many people have seen lack of diversity as a problem and want to do something about it. I know Global Payments has a strong initiative. I know Rise Up through Money 2020 has made an impact in connecting women in payments. I know WNET is working with partners on tailored diversity programs. So it's all a good start. The downside is compared to, <laughs> compared to other industries, we're primarily white and male. And so I think we have a lot of work to do. But as long as companies, nonprofits, associations, continue to be open culturally to increasing diversity, I think we're on a strong path. I think what people need to do, and some companies already have done this, is commit to goals, commit to those diversity inclusion goals in their strategic plan. If we don't measure it, it often doesn't get done. Right, right. I think that's a good lead into the next question. What advice would you give to a company that wants to start a diversity and inclusion program? So I did some research on this outside of what I had done with Cornell to see what people could get online. And I know SHRM has a step-by-step overview. There's a lot of online about how to develop a diversity and inclusion plan. The National Credit Union Administration, NCAU.gov, they posted a DNI plan for 2018 to 2022 that I think might be helpful if you're in financial services and want to look at how they set up their goals. The research and processes are available widely. The key is to get a commitment to increase diversity and inclusion. And generally, the best way to do that is by pulling the stats in a company and showing, here's where we're at with diversity in these areas. Here's where we're at with a pipeline to leadership. And then show the research that shows that increased diversity is linked to stronger performance, both in employee satisfaction and overall revenue with the company. I think that's the first step. The bare bones of 
a DNI implementation is one after you make the commitment that you want to do this is one including DNI metrics within leadership and management and tying that to not just goals, but also how they structure their team and bonuses. The second thing that's really cheap that people can do easily is create interview assessment matrices to kind of close the gap between how much an interviewer likes the person personally and jives with them and how good they would be a fit for that open job. And then the third thing I think is some sort of training. There's a lot of different ways that can be done, even with people working from home in understanding how unconscious bias isn't just our true nature, but we have a variety of perspectives. There's a lot of nuance in the world and focusing on the interactions in front of us. I think, like you said, we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable, but we also have to understand when we are more likely to show prejudicial beliefs and act on them. And if we can at least recognize that and think about it, and put in a process in place, if possible, it's not always possible to stop that. So some companies will offer like mindfulness or yoga or meditation classes in conjunction with DNI training. That's been a real trend in Silicon Valley. However, it's unclear if the goal is to lessen prejudice or unconscious bias or just increase the performance of their employees. I can tell you personally, having working on diversity and inclusion initiatives, working on a bunch of different things and being really committed to it and having a diverse team. If I get to a point where I'm upset with a client or a candidate or I'm feeling off, I will just go and meditate for 10 minutes and see how I feel and think about it from their perspective. And I think that's something we should be doing every day. It just has to go on with the leadership commitment and some sort of assessment matrices connecting to goals so that we have it on our goal side and kind of in our soft skills or personality side as well as we're in the company. Absolutely. Well, we've had a great conversation so far. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or discuss or leave with our audience? Um, as I've been pushing for diversity and inclusion in different areas and payments. I have heard pushback from senior leaders I know on inclusion efforts. Some will say they don't need that. Their team is fine. The top performers happen to be look like this and that's okay. Others will say it's simply common sense to ensure your team has different skill sets than you. That's how I do my team. Everyone does that. There's no need to do this. It's true that some companies have created an inclusive environment because it fits their needs. However, instead of seeing diversity and inclusion as a threat to the normal way we behave in business, I think we need to understand that inclusion is simply respecting and being open to other people's opinions and experience. Diversity is getting people in the door. I spoke with someone on Monday who is a black woman who has experienced a lot of microaggressions, who is senior level. And I asked, if you could share something when people are open to listen, what would you say? And she said, people need to accept that discrimination is a fact and we can't change it unless we're all on board. 
So I think instead of thinking of, well, not everyone feels that way, we have to understand everyone has a different perspective. That's what unconscious bias is. Inclusion is respecting other people's perspective. And I also think as an industry, especially with how involved we're getting in with fintech and payment facilitators and other technology companies, if we don't become more diverse as an industry or as companies, we will not be as competitive. So I would just leave your listeners with, it's not just a business imperative. It's not just for revenue. It will make us stronger and it's necessary for us to continue growing in the financial space. I agree with you 100% on that. That's great. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining the podcast today. How could our audience get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out? They can reach out on my LinkedIn or, of course, my email address. That's Liz at GreenRhinoRecruitment.com. You can also check out our website, GreenRhinoRecruitment.com. I'll say to anyone listening, if you're a business owner and you're interested in creating some sort of DNI program, but you don't know where to start with resources, I do have some resources that I could share with you that would help you assess diversity and inclusion and then set up some initial steps. That's, again, just as I see payments and working with people holistically, I'm happy to help out businesses when we're gearing towards this goal of becoming stronger. Great. Well, Liz, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate all of the insights and everything that you've shared on this topic. So thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Greg. It's so great to talk with you. That was Liz Pike, the president of Green Rhino Recruitment. And that was our third episode of our special series on diversity and inclusion. The next episode features Joe Carella from the University of Arizona. Without the support of our sponsors, the WNET and PaySafe, we wouldn't be able to bring you this special series. The WNET, or the Women's Network and Electronic Transactions, is celebrating 15 years of helping women achieve greater personal success, influence, and professional parity in the payments industry. WNET is a not-for-profit organization with the mission of creating a stronger and more diverse industry by empowering and investing in women. Learn how at WNETonline.org. And PaySafe invites you to learn more about PaySafe, their offerings, international culture, and unique team by visiting PaySafe.com. To learn more about the entire Diversity Inclusion series, visit LeadersInPayments.com.